to the choir master, to Jedithan, a psalm of David. I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle, so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me as I mused. The fire burned, then I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Selah. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Selah. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. I think the reason the book of Psalms is, um, is the most preached from book and the most beloved book in the history of the Christian church is because it's real. I think that's it. It's not sugary sweet. It doesn't come to you with, with some kind of a life that's just all joy all the time and all happiness all the time. It doesn't do that. It comes to us and says, you know what? It's not always happy. It's not a self-help book. It's not some kind of a seminar that you can go to that teaches you how to be every answer for yourself and says, just be positive. <laughs> that doesn't work. It doesn't gather us all up in its arms and then rush us away from pain. It gathers us up in its arms and it rushes us into pain. It presses into the difficult and dark things of life so that in those things it can then say, there is hope. And here's what his name is. Psalm 39 is one of those psalms. It's a psalm in which we find God actually afflicting David on purpose. He's afflicting David, trying to get David to do something that David would not otherwise ever do. And neither would I, and neither would you, because it violates our human nature. And so then what is God trying to get David to do? He's trying, by means of this affliction, to get David to stop, to silence the noise, to put away his phone, to throw away his computer, to go somewhere where nobody can bother him, and to actively, consciously, purposefully, and even painfully meditate upon the inescapable reality that this life that he's living, that I'm living, and that you're living is really, 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 really short. And as a result, because of that brevity, guys, unless we attach our lives through faith in Jesus to an eternal God and to his eternal plans and to his eternal purposes and to his eternal mission and to his eternal kingdom, our lives are meaningless. How could it be otherwise? 
I want you to answer this question, okay, to yourself, in your heart. It'd be awkward if you said it out loud. But I want you to think about it. Can you name one person, one, one person who 50 years from now or 75 years from now or 100 years from now or 150 years from now will even know your name, much less one thing about you? One person. Maybe you're one of those really rare and extraordinary people and, 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 and you have your name on a building and you're thinking, I don't know, maybe somebody will drive by my building and they'll say, hey, there's the whatever building and they'll know my name. Okay, let's just make it 250 years. Is your building still up? I'm going no on that. It's not. And that's traumatic and it's a little depressing. And so we don't like to think about it. By nature, we, we recoil from that which is painful. So we won't go there unless we're forced to. God forces through this affliction, David, to go there and to take us there. Why? Because there's a glorious opportunity contained within it. It is the opportunity to attach yourself through faith in Jesus to an eternal God, an eternal kingdom, an eternal mission, eternal plans, and eternal purposes. And if we don't do that, then here's what we are. We are nothing more than footprints in the sand right along the water's edge. We exist. It's undeniable. I can see you now. And then here comes the next wave, and it washes away every evidence that we ever were. But by attaching ourselves to the Lord, by actively looking to deploy ourselves according to plans that are eternal, we have the opportunity, and not as a monument to ourselves, but as a monument to His goodness and grace and to His glory alone, to leave an imprint that nothing and no one can wash away. David begins Psalm 39 with this. He says to the choir master, to Jedithun, who's one of his musicians, a psalm of David, and then he says this beginning in verse 1. He says, I said, I will guard my ways that I might not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle... So long as the what? So long as the wicked are in my presence. It was kind of funny. Monday morning, we um, got a text message from one of our friends, texted my wife, and she said, you know, is it strange that as I was doing my personal worship this morning and I read that first verse that I thought about all the people whose mouths I would like to muzzle? And, uh, and I don't know if that's strange or not, but, you know, I said to Beth, well, you know, we, we do all have that list, don't we? I mean, we do. And here's the other part of the deal. We are also all on someone else's list, so just know that. What's unusual here is not that David has a list. What's unusual is that he himself is the only person on his list in this moment in his life. He's saying, I have to actively muzzle my mouth in the presence of the wicked, meaning of those people who do not love, who do not worship, who do not serve the same God that I do. And why is it that he has to do that? Well, I think if you read between the lines of this psalm, what you discover is that in this moment in his life, David is afflicted with envy over the material prosperity of those whom he calls the wicked. Sounds weird to me. I mean, you think about that and you think, well, David was a king like what does he have to be envious of? Good grief, how much does that man need, you know, to be happy? And then that occurred to me, too, that kind of struck me as funny because I, I think that we only think that people who have more than us ought to ask that question. Do you agree with that? It's always the person who has more to, than us that we go, hey, you know, how much do you need? It's interesting, why don't we ask ourselves that? 
In Proverbs 30, in the prayer of Agur, this man prays a prayer of wisdom as a part of his prayer of wisdom. What does he say? He says, Lord, don't give me too little because then I'm going to be tempted to steal. And if I steal, I'm going to profane your name. And, but then he also says, and Lord, don't give me too much because I'll forget I even need you. Have you ever once prayed, don't give me too much? How much is enough? You know what the answer is? Just a little more. I mean, we all say that. And yet, what is the Bible telling us? It's telling us that at some point, and I don't know what that point is for everybody, it really is too much. David is envious, and he's envious in all likelihood because this is his peer group of the pagan kings all around him. And specifically, he's envious of, of their wealth. He's saying, Lord, you ordain all things. You control all things. And I'm looking at what you've given to those guys, and I'm looking at what you've given to me, and I'm comparing the two, and frankly, I'm kind of ticked. He says, as I wrestled with this disparity and the seemingly senseless inequity of this, like, why would you give it to those guys? They don't love you. They don't serve you. They don't worship you, but you've just given me this. He says, I was mute and silent, at least before them. I held my peace but to no avail. And my distress grew worse. My anger grew worse. My resentment grew worse. My bitterness grew worse. But anger and bitterness and resentment toward who? Because it's not toward these other kings who have more than him. It's toward the ultimate king who has ordained that they have more than him. He says, my heart became hot within me. And as I mused, as I considered all of these things, the fire in my heart burned, which is exactly the way that it works with envy and not just over material things, but over anything. You know, maybe you've got health problems and you're looking at your body and you're looking at the perfectly healthy bodies of people who don't worship and love and serve the Lord. And you're thinking, Lord, help me make sense of this because like I would be a lot more active in ministry if you gave me their health. Why do they have health and not me? We look at the intellect and the abilities of other people. And it's like we're working hard to get a C plus, you know? And like they're going out with their buddies and just skating through. And they're not developing it. They're not cultivating it. They're not using it really. They're not doing anything. You're like, Lord, why would you waste such talent and, and ability on somebody who's not even going to do anything with it? Good grief, why not me? We look at other people's relationships, particularly when ours are hard. And we think, man, we are really struggling. And at least from a distance, it looks like their relationship is darn near perfect. Why would you give that to them and not me? I'll give you another one. And it's a particularly painful example, but the reason I use it is because I think everybody can agree with this. Like we'll all go, yes, I can relate on some level at least with this. We look at people, and maybe you are one of these people, who would be the best parents, but they physically cannot have children. They can adopt them. They can foster them. I throw that out. But then we look at folks who are train wrecks as parents. Lots of kids. Like, what kind of a universe are we living in here? That's what we wonder. And the answer is one we've broken. But we blame God nevertheless. Which is effectively what David does. He says this in the last part of verse 3. He says, Then I spoke with my tongue. Here's why. Because he can't keep it in anymore. This is it. It's coming out. But notice who he speaks to. Because it's not to anyone who will listen. David doesn't get on Facebook and just blister the Lord. 
He doesn't get on there and go, oh guys, I'm so angry with the Lord because as I look at my life, He's done this and He's ordained this for me, but this for them. And here's the deal, it doesn't make any sense. Now I want to stop and say that would be bad for David's soul. That would be bad for the souls of everyone who read that and then liked it in sin. And it would be an act of unmitigated arrogance. Why? And we all do this, okay? Because when we think that way, when we say those kinds of things, what we're saying is that because it doesn't make sense to me, it cannot possibly make sense to anyone, even our Lord. So David wisely muzzles himself in the presence of what he coins the wicked, but he does not muzzle himself in the presence of the Lord. To the Lord, he pours it all out. He says, then I spoke with my tongue and I said, oh Lord, and then he says this, he says, make me to know my end. And here's what I don't think he means by that. I don't think he's saying, hey Lord, make me to know when this miserable life of mine is finally going to end. The word end implies purpose. He's being driven by his affliction to meditate on the brevity of his life and he's going, okay, if I only have this much time, what am I supposed to do with it? Get the idea? Lord, my life is here, it's gone. He's going to say all these things in just a second. So what is my purpose? Oh, Lord, make me to know my end and, and what is the measure of my days? That is to say, let me know how fleeting I am because by meditating on that, I, I'm going to come up with the answer to the purpose question. And here's what the answer to the purpose question is not. It is not, and this is in here, to accumulate great wealth. Is there anything wrong with accumulating great wealth? Is that a biblical sin? No. Now, it is a sin to realize that it isn't a gift from God to you. It is a sin to think, well, I own it all and I can do whatever I want with it. It is a sin to be ungrateful for it, but merely to gather it or to have it in and of itself is no sin. But here's where the sin also comes in. It is a sin to accumulate it in an effort to gain from it what I'm going to call weight, significance, importance, value, power. If that's what I'm looking to for those things, I'm a footprint in the sand down by the beach. I'm here, but only until the next wave. David says, let me know my end. Make me to know it. And what is the measure of my days? And let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, and now he's going to meditate. He says, you have made my days a few handbreadths. That is to say the distance between a thumb and a pinky. And here's what you can do with a thumb and a pinky. You can bring them together. They're so close. It's small. And my lifetime, so now it's not just his days, is as nothing, he says, before you. And now he doesn't just talk about himself. He talks about all of us. The whole of mankind, he says, all mankind stands as a mere breath. And how much does a breath weigh? Like if you take out a scale and you go on it, what does it register? Zero. It's the same with a shadow. You cast a shadow over a scale. There's no... There's no weight. All mankind collectively stands as a mere breath. Surely a man, he says, goes about as a shadow. And here's why weight matters. Because then David begins to speak about the people that he envies. 
And he says, surely for nothing, they, these people that I envy because they have more material possessions than I do, are in turmoil. But why are they in turmoil? They're in turmoil, David says, because man heaps up wealth, the idea being in order to give himself weight. Money in David's day was entirely made of metal. So if you heaped it up, it was heavy, you see? Weight, significance, importance, power, prestige that I'm trying to borrow, that I'm trying to generate by my pile, which is weighty. I'm trying to give myself weight to the accumulation of wealth. David says, doesn't work. He says, surely for nothing they, these people that I envy, because they have a bigger pile, if you will, than I do, are in turmoil because man, in his effort to give himself weight, heaps up wealth and yet does not even know as he's heaping it all up, who will gather it at the end of his really, 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 really short life. When he dies and leaves it all behind, and what he's saying is, is that in that moment, if that's what you've looked to for weight, then what you'll discover is you've, you're a footprint, and you're by the edge of the water, undeniably existed until the next wave came then it's over. And the point is, that is not a person to envy. That is a person in, in all authenticity to pity and to introduce to Christ. And so, David is calling us to find our weight in him. And James, the brother of Jesus, says effectively the same thing in James chapter 4, beginning in verse 13, where he says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and do what? It's the language of commerce, trade and make a profit. And again, James is not against trading and making a profit or making a plan by which to do so. It's not the point. He's against making a plan that does not account for God and his eternal purposes and plans, his eternal kingdom and mission. For to do that is to discount the undeniable and inevitable reality that our lives are brief and that we leave all this other stuff behind. He says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. For yet, as James now says, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. And then he asks this question, what is your life? And then he answers it. He says, for you are a mist. You're something people can walk through. You're something people can see through. You're something people can dissipate with their hands. You're something that a gentle breeze can come along and blow away. You're something that the sun rises upon and burns off very, very quickly. You are a mist, he says, that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You're barely here while you're here and, and then you're gone very quickly is the point. Moses, who watched an entire generation of Israelites perish in the wilderness, after talking about the brevity of life in many of the same terms that we've discussed here, prays a prayer of wisdom and he says, Oh God, Psalm 90, he says, Teach us to number our days. That is to say, teach us to live in light of the fact that our days are numbered. And they go very quickly. He says, teach us to number our days, and here's why, so that we may get a heart of wisdom. And the word wisdom means skill. He's saying, teach us to number our days so that we might develop the skill of living lives that in the end, to God's glory, not as a monument to us, leave an impression that nothing and no one 
can wash away. It's remarkable. I heard a story years ago about a man who, um, I guess he probably heard a sermon on this, actually. Psalm 90 is my guess. Uh, but he heard this principle, and so he went out, and he, he went home, and he, he looked at all the actuary tables, and he figured out how many years he was projected to live, and he figured out how many days were in each year that he was projected to live. So how many days is he projected to live? And then he went to Target, and he went to Toys R Us, and Hobby Lobby, and wherever else that they sell marbles, and he bought all the marbles that he possibly could, until finally he had enough marbles to account for every day that he was projected to live, and then he put all of these marbles in these big plastic bins in his garage, and then at the end of every day, he would pull into the garage, he'd get out, he'd open a plastic bin, he'd pull out a marble, and he'd walk over to the trash can and he'd throw it away. Why? Because he is self-consciously forcing himself to deal with the uncomfortable reality that our days are numbered and that they go very quickly and that there's only one kingdom that in the end endures. It's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. And it's the Lord's kingdom. And David comes to this realization. Psalm 39, now beginning in verse 7, he says, And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? In other words, where is my hope for a life that's more weighty than just a breath? My hope is in you. So then, he says, deliver me from all my transgressions. And do not make me the scorn of the fool, meaning of the one who thinks that he has far more than me, but doesn't have you and therefore has infinitely less. That person is not to be envied. That person is to be pitied and told about Christ. I am mute. I do not open my mouth. So he's now returned again to silence, but for a different reason. He's not trying to hold back all of his anger at the Lord, all of his resentment in the face of people who don't believe in Jesus. He's saying, no, I will silently endure what you have ordained for me. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. That is to say, you are the one who is afflicting me, and I will quietly endure it. I submit to it, though. He does ask again for deliverance. He says, remove your stroke or your scourge from me, for I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth, secretly, quietly, tiny little bit by tiny little bit by tiny little bit until it's gone. You consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. We have no weight. And so he says, hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. Do you see how that escalates? A prayer you pray silently. A cry, a loud voice. Tears is the highest plea of all. He says, I am a sojourner with you. In this world in which I live, I am not a permanent citizen. I'm not here for long. A guest like all of my fathers who share this faith and understanding. And then David closes with this. He says, look away from me, which is just another way of saying, stop afflicting me, please, so that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. So there it is. Dr. Bernice King, who is the daughter of Martin Luther King Jr. and the CEO of the King Center in Atlanta, asks this question, and I want to ask it of you. I think it's brilliant. She says, when you die, will it matter that you lived? When you die, will it matter that you lived? Here's why I think this fits, because the whole point of this message is that the answer to that is no if you're trying to make the answer to that yes by what you accumulate or by what you achieve or by what you build or by what you whatever. 
but that the answer to that is yes, if you'll surrender yourself to Jesus and to his plans and to his purposes, if you make yourself primarily about his mission and about the building of his kingdom, if you'll do that, then to his glory, you'll leave an imprint that never fades. So think about that before you come to the Lord's table. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us that you do not hide the realities of life from us, but that you speak very clearly and poignantly in them and through them. We thank you for the sufferings of this man David and how they're redeemed even today as we enter into them and gain the wisdom that he was given by you through them. And I pray now that you give us the faith by which to live out that wisdom in our own lives. Lord, teach us indeed to number our days. Don't allow us to recoil from the brevity of this life that we cannot deny anyway. It's all around us. But help us to embrace it as an opportunity, God. We know our purpose. It is to live for you. Let us run into that purpose. And let us use the days you've given to that end. Forgive our sin, O Lord, in all the ways that we have lived for ourselves, we pray. And we pray that as a monument to your glory, that we might do some things too that last forever. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.